This is the Stanley Avenue Church of Christ podcast. We are going through the book of Acts. We are now in Acts chapter 4, and as usual, I'll begin reading the passage and then make some comments from it. We'll be reading Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1 from the NIV. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many people who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem, and as the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other high priest's family, and they had Peter and John brought before them, and began to question them. By what power and in what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if, I, if I'm being called to count today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone which you builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of John and Peter and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing else they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin that they could confer together. What are we going to do about these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further from among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them again and commanded them not to speak in or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They, they could not decide how to punish them because of all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant David, our father. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and all the Israelites in the city to conspire against your holy servant, whom you appointed. They did what your power and your will decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. As the passage progresses here, we find that Peter and John are standing by themselves 
whereas before they were amongst the other apostles working miracles, now they are by themselves uh, working uh, this one miracle. And uh, they are at one time before many thousands here inside the temple, uh, back in chapter 3, but now are before the Sanhedrin. Now this really should be the more threatening venue. And uh, we should be able to see that if any normal person was in this case, they would probably go ahead and back down, start apologizing, and backpedal. But Peter and John do the opposite from that. So first off, in in, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 here, we see that it was primarily the Sadducees who are upset by all this. They're the ones who are disturbed because, remember, that the Sadducees did not preach the resurrection. Mark chapter 12 and verse 18 says that the Sadducees were wanting to come to Jesus to trick him, and they were trying to use a hypothetical scenario about the resurrection, but they didn't even believe in the resurrection. And this actually is going to become a, a very important factor. Uh, at the end of the book of Acts, in chapter 23, we find that Paul of course, who is a Pharisee, knows very well the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And uh, Acts 23 and verse 8 says expressly that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge all these things. So the Sadducees are the primary ones here being in control of the temple. Uh, They're in control of the proceedings that are happening. Most of the priests, if not all the priests, are Sadducees. The ones who were adopted as high priests at this point in time were actually appointed by the Roman government, or at least allowed to serve as high priest, and that's sometimes why we actually have two different high priests mentioned. We have Annas and Caiaphas. When you read the Gospel of John, you find that both of those men were present. One of them were the, was the high priest that the Jews wanted. The other was the high priest that the Romans were allowing uh, to serve. But the Sadducees did not like the idea of resurrection. They did not believe in such things, and really it boils down to they didn't believe in the afterlife the same way that you or I do. And so this was a cause of disturbance for them. So they capture Peter and John, they bring him in front of the Sanhedrin council, most of them in this case being the Sadducees, but later on we find that some of them are Pharisees as well. In verse 5, we see that thousands have been converted by this sermon already. And so the sermon, the miracle preached uh, and seen back in chapter 3 has changed thousands of people. And they're going to refer to this uh, later on and they're going to say, we got to be careful what we do because everybody in Jerusalem heard about this. Many thousands of people have been persuaded by this. And what we know about the Sadducees is they want to be people pleasers. That's one of the reasons why they were not willing to confront Jesus so openly because they were wanting to be people pleasers. They knew that the people liked Jesus and they couldn't openly criticize Jesus Jesus the same way. And they find themselves in the same scenario here. The people were welcoming the message. They knew that good things were happening through the hands of Peter and John, so they weren't willing to commit to anything too harsh at this moment. But in verse 6, we find that These individuals who are gathered together, named here Annas and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all who are of the high priestly descent, uh, the high priest's family, they're all here. And these are the people who are personally responsible for executing Jesus. These are the ones who got the ball rolling. These are the ones who were committing Jesus to death. And so here Peter and John are right in front of these men. And if you have any reason for fear 
then this would normally be the moment. These are the ones that got Jesus executed, and here they are preaching the name of Jesus. Well, Peter's defense in verse 9 begins by saying, everything that we've done up to this point has been good. If we're on trial today for a benefit done to this sick man, uh, then why are you persecuting us? We've done something good. You should be praising God just like the rest of the people. Now, the Sadducees recognize the connection between the miracle and the message that Peter was preaching. The reason why they were not willing to commit to praising God for this miracle was they were not willing to adhere to the message. They did not want to accept the message of the resurrection. And so they were wanting to deny it. So they couldn't deny the miracle. So instead, they started attacking the ones who did the miracle. This is the same tactic that they used on Jesus. When they couldn't deny Jesus was casting out demons, for example, they just said, well, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan himself. And Jesus, of course, pointed out that that's ludicrous. That just doesn't work. Peter, uh, Peter appeals to the same argument here by saying, look, the work that we're doing here is, is good work. Why are you fighting against this? But now that you say it, now that you ask, Jesus is the one responsible for all this. This good work is done through the name of Jesus. Just as Jesus did good works of miracles, he is able to do the same thing through us, and it's still his power that's doing this. But in verse 11, he quotes scripture here, the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, became the chief cornerstone. Of course, this is to fulfill the prophecy of the Psalms, which talk about this, that if you're a master builder and you're, you're looking to lay your foundation, you've got to look for the best cornerstone to build your house on. And of course, the perfect foundation to lay was Jesus, but they were unwilling to dig deep to find out who he really was. They were looking for their own version, and so they rejected him entirely, even though he was the perfect cornerstone that God chooses to use. And in verse 12, when he says there is salvation in no one else, there is no other name under heaven given among men that you should be saved. This is quite applicable to their situation. He has just criticized them by saying, you have destroyed, you have killed God's Messiah. If you want salvation, you don't have anyone else to run to. You can't run to any other source. You can't even run to the law of Moses to save you from what you've done. If you want saved, you have to admit your own error. You have to be willing to follow him just like the rest of the people have. Well, in verse 13, the people recognize that Peter and John are different. They're not speaking as you would expect normal people to speak. Normal people would be cowering in the presence of the Sanhedrin council, but Peter and John have courage. They have confidence, and they're speaking with understanding, and that's in the face of being uneducated. And they know, whether it be the vocabulary they're using, I don't really know, but there's something about these men that is not educated like they are, and yet they are not speaking human wisdom. They're speaking a wisdom that comes from a higher source, and they recognize that. And they also recognize that they have been with Jesus. Now, that may just be uh, the way in which they were speaking the message, coming from the boldness that they were speaking. However, I would draw your attention back over to John chapter 18, where it says, 
that Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that other disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing outside the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Now then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not one of this man's disciples too. And he said, Well, I am not. And then later down in verse 25, Simon Peter was standing warming himself, and they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples too, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. But one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And of course Peter denied it again. Or on the one hand, you have Peter back here before these same people, denying his knowledge of Jesus, denying any association or relationship to Jesus, and presumably uh, John is this other disciple who allowed Peter to come in. Uh, the, the council here and the high priestly family, they know this other disciple whom we're going to assume is John, and they may very well recognize John and Peter from the evening of uh, Jesus' own crucifixion. Remember, it's only been a couple months. And so at one point, Peter was denying the knowledge of Jesus, denying any association, but now they can recognize him as having been with Jesus. And he's standing up for Jesus. He's being bold and confident. This is a very different person. Peter and John both are, are very different people, and I think that's what's so notable in this situation. When you're reading through both the Gospels and then you get into Acts, what you find is there is a radical transformation that happens with the apostles. They go from a cowering, fighting, squabbling group of men who are dissociated from every form of what Jesus tries to get them to understand, and now in the book of Acts, they're just complete, radically transformed to be the image that Jesus wants them to be. And that comes through the power of the resurrection and the understanding that Jesus is able to transmit to them. They were now understanding the scriptures the way the Sadducees and Pharisees never could. They were now proclaiming boldly the message of the resurrection because they were confident that Jesus is able to resurrect them from the dead even if the council should destroy their lives as well. And so, they can't deny this miracle. The council cannot deny this, and they self-admit that among themselves in verse 16. It says, a notable miracle has taken place. We can't deny this. So, if you can't deny a miracle, why don't they believe? Sometimes we should ask ourselves the same thing. If we can't deny the truths of the scripture, why do we go on sinning sometimes? Why do we continue in disbelief that God is present, that God is watching, that God will punish our actions. And yet, in the face of belief in the academic knowledge of what the scriptures teach, sometimes we, in our lives, deny the truth of it by how we live. And that's what this, uh, the Sadducees are doing here. They're acknowledging the technical accuracy of what's happening, but their stubbornness knows no boundaries. Stubbornness gets in their way. Stubbornness can get in our way. The resurrection was a stumbling block to these people, and that's what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Jews, the Sadducees in particular, saw the resurrection as a stumbling block, and their stubbornness was unwilling to get over that, even when the miracle was undeniable. Some people, uh, even today, sometimes us included, are not willing to part with our own stubbornness and what we think and what we believe and what we want. 
But in the face of truth, in the face of undeniable fact, we must be willing to mold ourselves into the image that God is compelling us to be. So they can't deny the miracle, but they're unwilling to change as well. And so they're not willing to publicly admit the miracle. They publicly want to just kind of get rid of Peter and John altogether because, again, they still fear the people. They think that they might still have some matter, some manner of authority in verse 17. And they say, we got to stop this from spreading, so we will command them not to spread Jesus' name anymore. And so Jesus, uh, Peter calls them on that in verses 19 and 20. He says, you want to pit yourself against God? Well, you can try. But if you tell us to do one thing and God's told us to do another, we can't uh, disobey God. We can't stop speaking about the things that we've seen and heard. And that draws me back to the gospel stories that of Jesus' healing in Mark, specifically chapter 1. We find that Jesus, whenever he healed, just like uh, Peter and John had healed here, when Jesus healed in Mark 1, for example, in verse 44 and 45. Jesus said to the healed man, See that you do not say anything to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the cleansing for what Moses commanded, as is a testimony. But instead, did the man be quiet? No. Instead, he went out and proclaimed it freely and spread the news around, to the extent that Jesus couldn't uh, enter publicly any city, because population uh, people were coming in from everywhere to be healed. Or specifically, let's note over in Mark chapter 7 and verse 36, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone about this miracle, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Even in Jesus's ministry, even when he wanted the people to be silent about what was happening because he didn't want his message, he didn't want his teaching to be waylaid by any other obstacles, they could not stop talking about what Jesus did for them. And then in, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 9, after Peter and John noticed that they were two of the, of the three ones present at Jesus's transfiguration, it says, as they were coming down from the mountain... He, that is Jesus, gave orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So Peter and John are specifically thinking probably about this moment here. They have witnessed the transfigured Jesus. They have witnessed the resurrected Son of God, Son of Man. And Jesus has expressly told them, now is the time to be proclaiming this message. God has told them, now is the time. And Peter tells them, we can't stop. You, you can't stop us from speaking these things. These things are too incredible. And of course, if you were to read the gospel or the uh, the epistles that Peter writes, First uh, Peter and even Second Peter, Second Peter itself talks about the eyewitness account that Peter is proclaiming. And John, if you read John's epistles, John chapter First John in the first chapter, he talks about the things that he personally has witnessed and touched and heard and felt. They are eyewitnesses of this, and Peter and John cannot stop talking about the things that God has shown them. So the Sanhedrin council, they can't do anything else. They, they fear the people. They don't know what they should do, so they just let them go with a warning, a slap on the wrist. And so the apostles, Peter and John, they return back to the others and the rest of the company who I assume are going to be worried about this. They probably are fearing that perhaps they might be executed because that's what they did to Jesus. They had been held overnight in prison, so I'm sure they're anxiously awaiting news. So they came back, they told them the news, 
and they turn to God in prayer. In the face of adversary, they pray. In the face of this great miracle that has just taken place, they pray. And this is a prayer uh, that's interesting because the majority of it is uh, simply recognition for what God has done, and then the very end of it is the petition that they have. So verse 24, they begin with praise. They begin with a recognition of God's authority. They call God the Lord. Uh, They recognize that he is creator, and that gives him eminent authority over all situations. In verse 25 and 26, they acknowledge the scriptures. Uh, Psalm chapter 2, that prophesies about the rebellion that the people of the world will have against God and God's anointed, meaning the Messiah. In this case, however, in Psalm 2, you would expect that it's primarily the Gentiles who are the antagonists. But you'll find in verse 27 that the disciples here are placing the Jewish leaders and all Israel lumped in together with the Gentiles who are going against God's plans and going against God's Christ. All people are responsible for this, and even when the Psalms mention the Gentiles specifically, the disciples here recognize that the Jews who are going against God's plans are just as bad as the Gentiles and are not the children of Abraham by faith. Verse 27 and 28 recognize God's plan. Jesus' resurrection was by the plan and foreknowledge of God. This was not an accident. This was not mankind overriding God's plans. No, rather, this was God's plans happening through what the people were doing in spite of their wanting to do it against God and his Messiah. And then finally, at the end in verse 29 and 30 is the actual petition. So they ask God for essentially three things. Number one, to take note of what's happening. God, please take note. No, it's not that they don't believe God's watching. It's, again, an appeal that the psalmists often use to call upon God for help due to their circumstances. So they're asking that God observe and evaluate their circumstances. They believe that they have reason to ask and petition God, and they expect, reasonably expect, that God is going to answer in favor of their petition. Secondly, they're asking for boldness. They ask that God would grant them boldness. Even the very preaching of the gospel they attribute to God's power. They recognize, I'm sure Peter and John recognize, and may have been a bit surprised at themselves with the transformation that's happened to them. They, they credit God with this change in their own behavior and character. They, they credit God for the boldness that they are able to speak, and they ask God, we want to keep preaching in that similar boldness, and they ask for God's strength in the matter. And then finally, they ask for healing. They ask that they can continue to heal and perform signs and wonders so that they can do exactly what has been done. Chapter 2, a great sign happened and people, thousands of people came to Christ. In chapter 3, a great sign took place and thousands of people heard the gospel and came to Christ. And so their petition is that God can repeat this pattern, that Healings will occur, people will see it, they will be in awe and wonder over these miracles, they will listen to the boldness that they will preach, and more people can come to Christ. And of course, verse 31 ends uh, with the answer being prayer. God shakes this place, the ground is, is shaken, it symbolizes this great power in God's presence, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and he essentially answers their prayer. He come, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they speak out with boldness. That's exactly what they are asking for. And notice that the Holy Spirit coming upon them, in the book of Acts, even so far, 
primarily has to do with the message that they are proclaiming. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 14, he would send a messenger, a helper in aid, so that they could speak forth the whole truth. And so that is what the Holy Spirit is helping them to understand here. He comes upon them so that they can speak what they need to speak. They don't have to be afraid of what they're going to say before the rulers. Jesus is with them. God's Spirit is with them. He's there leading them to be what they need to be. Thank you for listening. And for more, you can always visit stanleyavenuecoc.org and follow along with us every week as we are going through our weekly Bible reading and this time through the book of Acts.